Hi. Um, so today uh, I was going to talk about a, um, a pretty general topic, um, but I thought it applicable to most of the people in the audience. Um, I also think that it's interesting for a couple different reasons. One, because of the large body of literature that's been developing, and also because of the questions that remain unanswered, which I'll talk about kind of uh, through most of this presentation. Um, so I have no financial disclosures, uh, and I won't be talking about any non-FDA-approved um, uh, uses of medications. Um, so just an overview of the, the presentation itself. So we'll talk about um, food protein-induced uh, colitis, um, so allergic proctocolitis, and then similar entities of um, food protein-induced enteropathy and food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome, or FPIs. Um, We'll talk a little bit about the clinical features and laboratory testing of these entities, as well as uh, the proposed pathogenesis, in particular of allergic proctocolitis. Um, we'll talk about how the um, diseases are treated and the prognosis for them, and then we'll close with a little bit of information about some developing literature in terms of probiotics, associated diseases, and a few other topics. Um, so, um, another reason why I wanted to talk a little bit about this disease in particular is because I think that it can be very confusing, and that's evidenced here by the fact that all of these names here describe the same entity or a very similar entity. So, we see here food protein-induced allergic proctocolitis, cow's milk protein allergy, eosinophilic proctocolitis, allergic proctocolitis, milk protein intolerance, and milk protein sensitivity, all describing the same thing, synonyms for what we'll call milk protein allergy. Um, so the distinction, the immunological distinction between these entities is classified as non-IgE mediated or um, not mediated by the antibody IgE, IgE mediated diseases, and then mixed diagnoses. So these non-IgE mediated diseases include the three that I had mentioned previously, food protein induced allergic proctocolitis, food protein induced enteropathy, and food protein induced enterocolitis syndrome or FPIs. These differ distinctly from IgE mediated diseases, particularly in symptoms um, and in pathogenesis. So IgE-mediated diseases, as the name describes, are mediated by IgE and mast cell activation. They include typical um, entities like food allergies, peanut allergies, anaphylaxis, um, immediate hypersensitivity. And those obviously are distinct from these mix, mixed diagnoses, those that include both non-IgE and IgE-mediated elements. Those are things such as uh, eosinophilic esophagitis and atopic dermatitis. So when we think about the, uh, the spectrum of non-IgE-mediated entities, um, we can think about them on a continuum. On one side of the continu continuum, we have uh, food protein-induced allergic proctocolitis or milk protein allergy. On the other, we have FPIs. Uh, those are distinct in terms of severity, number of foods commonly associated, age of presentation, time to resolution, and a few other details. So here on the left side, when we think about severity of symptoms or age of onset um, or age of resolution, 
we see here that uh, milk protein allergy or allergic proctocolitis, typically symptoms are less severe, most commonly um, occult uh, or um, grossly bloody stools. Um, and on the other side of the spectrum, we have uh, FPIs, uh, symptoms typically uh, thought to be more severe, hypotension, shock, and others. Uh, the number of foods, fewer on the left-hand side, more on the right-hand side, uh, and the age of presentation and resolution, younger, typically around two months or before for food protein-induced allergic proctocolitis, sometimes um, uh, beyond one year for uh, FPIs, it, it's largely centered around the um, antigen exposure, the first antigen exposure. Um, before I talk a little bit more about uh, milk protein allergy, which we'll focus on for most of the presentation, I just wanted to touch briefly on these other two entities, uh, food protein-induced enteropathy involving both the large and small bowel, distinct from milk protein allergy, which would involve only the colon or distal um, GI tract. Um, and uh, symptoms uh, predominantly including malabsorption, protein-losing enteropathy, and low protein. Um, FPIs, we mentioned, uh, the entire gastrointestinal tract uh, can be involved and uh, symptoms are often more pronounced. Uh, a little bit more about FPIs because it can be uh, very um, uh, alarming in presentation uh, and um, the, uh, it usually presents in infancy, but again, the timing of the, uh, the onset is dependent on the antigen exposure. Uh, it's much less common than allergic proctocolitis. It typically, um, uh, it, it varies uh, in, in region, um, and it's a hard thing to study, but uh, uh, um, we studies cited as occurring in uh, less than 0.5% uh, of the population, whereas milk protein allergy is much more common, occurring somewhere between 2 and 5% of the population. Um, it's more common to occur with multiple foods, so up to 35% have two or more uh, troublesome foods, and um, the common foods are listed here, including cow's milk, soy, rice, oat, and egg. Uh, similar symptoms, um, or excuse me, um, symptoms occur uh, typically briefly after ingestion, so uh, within hours. They're listed here, including vomiting, pallor, lethargy, and diarrhea. Um, that differs, again, from some of these other entities, particularly cow's milk protein allergy, which doesn't show symptoms typically immediately after ingestion. Symptoms are listed here. Again, uh, they're thought to be more severe in presentation, so including things like edema, shock, uh, failure to thrive, hypothermia. And laboratory findings are uh, typically illustrative of these um, symptoms, so anemia, thrombocytosis, leukocytosis, hypoalbuminemia, and acidemia. So shifting gears, a little bit back to um, milk protein allergy. I prefaced uh, part of this with the growing body of literature. Here, these look at um, PubMed publications within you know the last uh, 50 years, and we see the uh, the number of publications that have been growing that include milk protein allergy. So clearly, there is. Uh, um, 
several areas that are being elucidated uh, within the entity, but we have a lot more to explore. Um, as I mentioned, uh, there's a, a range of suspected prevalence uh, between 2 and 5%. I say here suspected prevalence because um, the criteria by which uh, milk protein allergy is defined impacts this prevalence value. Um, most individuals uh, describe uh, milk protein allergy or categorize milk protein allergy as the inclusion of uh, um, occult or gross uh, blood within the stools, but um, some have more strict um, or more lenient uh, criteria. There also, it seems to be impacted by geographic location. Um, when we look at this entity in different parts of the world, the prevalence seems to have a different factor, whether that's um, microbiome related or um, immunologically related, we have a, um, we're still learning a little bit more about. Um, among those infants who present with rectal bleeding, there's a big range of prevalence that has been cited in literature. It ranges from less than a percent of those who present with uh, grossly bloody or occult bloody stools uh, uh, up to 64% of those, um, and those are confirmed based on endoscopic findings. Um, the typical age of onset, as I mentioned, is less than two months, but again, there's a range with that also uh, in, in infants uh, uh, less than one week of, old, uh, of age um, to um, several months of age. The diagnosis, as I mentioned, is uh, a little bit variable because it is a, a largely a clinical diagnosis, and um, most will include the criteria of visible or occult rectal bleeding, although not all. Uh, loose stools are common, as well as reflux-type symptoms. Eczema and fussiness or, um, or colic have also been described as uh, attributable to milk protein allergy. Um, labor testing is typically not pursued, but if it is pursued, um, occasionally mild anemia can be noted and um, uh, predominance of eosinophils within the serum can also be um, observed. Uh, stool testing, again, not specifically uh, um, uh, indicated in most instances, but if pursued, white blood cells um, and uh, in particular eosinophils can be uh, um, seen within um, stool. Um, this references back to uh, the diagnosis of FPIs, but if we have uh, infants where we're having some of these more worrisome symptoms, including fever, large volume stool output that relates to hypotension, um, symptoms within hours of ingestion, or weight loss. We'd like to think about alternative diagnoses. The importance and distinction is that uh, the severity of symptoms may preclude them from doing some testing um, and trials at home, and we'd like to observe them because of the concern for um, needing impending interventions. Um, just a little bit further about testing. Um, we have a test available to, to us now um, called a fecal calprotectin. Um, it's a marker for, of intestinal inflammation. We've, uh, we have most experience in using it with uh, um, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, it's derived from neutrophils. Um, when we've recently, more recently, had the utility of doing this type of test, 
we still don't know the exact areas in which it will be useful. Uh, this study here looked to try to determine if it might be, if it might be useful uh, in diagnosing or helping to stratify patients uh, um, where we're concerned about milk protein allergy. What this study showed was that there's a significant overlap in those who um, do and do not have symptoms of milk protein allergy, and there's large variation uh, in even healthy infants and those who respond to milk restriction. And so at this point, we don't recommend uh, uh, fecal calprotectin testing for infants with consideration for milk protein allergy. Um, several foods are implicated. The most common are listed here. Um, cow's milk, obviously, as the name suggests, uh, is the most common uh, offending agent. We can see here uh, similar symptoms with egg, soy, and corn. We mentioned that it's more common for multiple foods to uh, be concerning about uh, FPIs or other entities, but there is a fraction of those who are categorized as uh, milk protein allergy or allergic proctocolitis uh, do have a response to multiple foods, which um, necessitate eliminating multiple foods from the diet. Um, endoscopy and flexible sigmoidoscopy used to have a, uh, a larger role when there was less information known about milk protein allergy. Um, it's pursued in select cases where there's still a question of the diagnosis, but certainly not pursued in all cases. Uh, if a flexible um, a sigmoidoscopy is completed uh, visually, um, we can see patchy erythema and edema. Um, and histopathology here, um, I've uh, included two pictures. We see on the left here um, normal colonic tissue, and we see on the right here uh, infiltrate of eosinophils. We can also see an infiltrate within the lamina propria of um, plasma cells occasionally as well. Um, we often uh, get asked by families about uh, the role of IgE testing, um, uh, whether that's uh, serum testing or skin prick testing, which in these entities, because as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, they're non-IgE mediated, they typically don't have a role. Um, there's some developing literature about uh, the um, individuals who are diagnosed with these non-IgE mediated diseases developing IgE-mediated diseases later in life, and that we're still learning a little bit about. But for this particular entity, uh, we don't suggest um, uh, skin prick testing or serum testing for IgE. Uh, diagno diagnosis is uh, largely clinical and based off of elimination, and then what few pursue, but in a uh, clinical trial, what we would suggest is uh, reintroducing and observing the presence or absence of symptoms. That algorithm here is, is depicted in some of our guidelines. If we follow this uh, algorithm uh, from the top, kind of to the middle, and then over to the right hand, we can see here largely a clinical diagnosis based on history and physical, plus or minus lab tests. We see a diagnosis uh, through the um, elimination of the offending agent, typically cow's milk. Um, uh, 
we see improvement in symptoms. And then this is the uh, part that's less often pursued, but um, a, uh, a challenge of that offending agent um, to demonstrate that it was in fact the, um, the agent that was removed. If that is positive, then we see over on the left continuation for a, a therapeutic elimination diet is pursued. Um, there's a few different hypotheses about the, uh, the way that this develops and um, in whom it will develop. Uh, the um, leading hypothesis relates to oral tolerance and uh, in the developing immune system the, and the developing intestinal, um, uh, gastrointestinal system, uh, the uh, intestinal enterocyte endocytosis is affected. Um, there's another theory that the gastrointestinal barrier may be breached in some of these infants, uh, and that allows for an, uh, an immune response. Um, it makes sense that the offending agents here are those that are introduced early in life, uh, those typically from proteins, uh, those proteins typically found in formula or breast milk, um, because they are recognized as falsely antigenic uh, from an, a very early age, and that then elicits the immune response. Um, that pathophysiology here is depicted with uh, um, immature. Um, gastrointestinal system. We see here that the offending uh, agent, again, early in life, uh, is um, typically the proteins from uh, standard formula or breast milk. Um, and those, as again, an error in um, uh, enterocyte endocytosis or uh, mucosal breach, um, they're uh, inappropriately recognized as foreign or antigenic. That then allows for an immune response to be mediated, which then ultimately contributes to gastrointestinal bleeding, which is then detected through occult studies in the office or the vis uh, visible uh, um, uh, uh, rectal bleeding. Uh, those two proteins that are uh, the most highly antigenic are beta-lactoglobulin, which is the major whey protein, um, and casein, which uh, comes in a couple different isoforms. Um, this is uh, well established both in uh, standard formulas as well as breast milk from mothers who have an unrestricted diet. Uh, so we, um, we also know that there's significant cross-reactivity between soy proteins and cow's milk proteins. So that's demonstrated both molecularly uh, with uh, epitope homogeneity as well as uh, clinically. And when we, re when we attempt to remove um, a single protein and reintroduce uh, potentially soy, we see a, a, a significant reaction in a proportion of those individuals. Um, and that uh, overlap is thought to be somewhere around 30% depending on the studies that we look at. Um, there are other proteins, as I mentioned, uh, associated with ent this entity, including eggs, including corn, and a couple others. Um, when we think about why in this disease this happens um, only in the colon or in the um, distal colon, uh, there have been a couple groups that have attempted to look at this, and there's uh, two thoughts that have been proven on a, um, in, um, uh, in vitro and in vivo studies 
Uh, one of them is that there's a, um, an antibody that is potentially bound to uh, these milk proteins. And when the um, protein with the um, antibody traverses through the gastrointestinal system, that antibody is then cleaved, uh, liberating the protein itself. The protein then has then the opportunity to interact with the lining of the mucosa and traverse um, and have subsequent immunological uh, reactions. Um, there's another mechanism that's proposed, uh, uh, thought to be um, uh, in part um, autoimmune mediated, uh, which is a, a working hypothesis from this group. Um, in terms of what to do after a diagnosis is confirmed, um, we know that these individuals will benefit from maternal elimination of uh, um, particular proteins. Um, and there's a role for protein hydrolysate formulas, whether that's extensively hydrolyzed or amino acid based. Um, we often encounter the question of should we, if we're thinking about it at all, should we restrict these people uh, um, uh, from these intact proteins? Um, we know that there is uh, developing literature about IgE-mediated diseases, in particular nut allergies, that early introduction prevents the, um, the development of these IgE-mediated diseases. And if we extrapolate some of that literature to non-IgE-mediated diseases, we may be de doing a disservice to some of these individuals. Uh, by overly restricting their diet or unnecessarily restricting their diet as their immune system is developing. Uh, we also, again, know that um, these individuals who have non-IgE-mediated diseases uh, have a propensity to developing IgE-mediated diseases uh, later in life, and for that rationale, um, we uh, try to not unnecessarily restrict um, uh, infants' diets. Um, here we have listed the extensively hydrolyzed formulas, which probably have uh, the most uh, utility as well as the um, elemental formulas. So these uh, two groups depicted here are the most clinically relevant. Um, the other rationale for consideration of not unnecessarily restricting um, these infants' diets is that um, we see the cost associated with these formulas can be uh, um, a barrier for some families pursuing some of these uh, treatment options. Um, just uh, uh, to note here, um, and I'll touch upon again a little bit later, but we know that Nutramagen and Extensive HA here are, um, include probiotics currently. Um, and we also know that Alimentum of these formulas uh, is not made, uh, the ready-to-feed version of Alimentum is not made with corn or corn syrup, and so in the rare instances of a uh, corn sensitivity or allergy, um, Alimentum ready-to-feed is often one of the few formulas that uh, can be helpful. Um, in terms of management, so these extensively hydrolyzed formulas, which were in the middle of the prior slide, those uh, um, can contribute to continued <coughs> symptoms in uh, up to 77% of cases. And so in those cases, further restriction is 
often warranted. Um, and um, in breastfeeding mothers who are pursuing a soy restriction, uh, we typically um, uh, have found that the ingestion of non-protein or low-protein containing elements, so those are things like soy lecithin, uh, are typically well tolerated. Um, there's no guidelines currently about uh, um, alternative mammalian milks, whether that's ingested by uh, uh, moms who are breastfeeding or given directly to uh, infants. Um, there's case reports of tolerance as well as continued um, uh, continued symptoms, and so there's very little evidence regarding that. Um, in studies, again, trying to extrapolate from IDE, IgE literature, which is a little more um, conclusive and robust, um, there is good evidence about the introduction of baked protein hastening the tolerance to untreated, unheated products. So in one study looking at IgE-mediated allergies detected through um, uh, serum and skin prick testing, 80% of subjects who were offered baked milk achieved tolerance at 60 months, whereas a much smaller proportion of those matched controls, 24%, uh, um, continued to have symptoms at this same interval, so 60 months. Um, it's unclear right now if baked introduction or if um, maternally ingested um, reintroduction, so having mom consume the vending agent, typically cow's milk, and then breastfeeding is thought to be the most uh, gentle, in a sense, uh, way to uh, reintroduce some of these proteins into an infant's diet. Um, if left untreated, symptoms may resolve spontaneously um, in about 20%. Again, there's a big range in terms of time to resolution. Uh, and if dietary changes are pursued, a response is often observed within 48 hours. Uh, we do know, though, that that response can linger, especially if what we're following requires mucosal healing or uh, if there um, is an inflammatory or uh, um, immunological mediation to this. Uh, and so rectal bleeding can persist for more than, uh, uh, in more than 50% of patients for up to two weeks or even a little bit longer. Um, there's very little data about uh, what happens to these infants who we do not treat. Um, there's so little data that uh, it's in a sense of um, expert reports. There's no clinical trials that uh, we have to, uh, to refer to. But in this uh, unpublished expert report, um, in 27 breastfeeding mothers who attempted to restrict uh, but uh, infants continued to have symptoms, uh, all infants were asymptomatic by six months of age. Uh, there was no longitudinal follow-up in terms of uh, the development of IgE-mediated diseases for this particular individual who conducted this um, or other disease processes later in life. Um, one infant of these 27 was noted to experience mild anemia, but otherwise um, all had um, only clinical diagnoses and no laboratory derangements. Um, there is, if left untreated, consideration for monitoring in terms of anemia and hypoalbuminemia, at which point, if those are encountered, uh, um, some individuals anecdotally will feel 
stronger about further restriction, whether that's uh, for breast milk or for formula. Um, and when we do treat, a majority of these individuals uh, typically resolve by 12 months of age. We see here graphically depicted uh, about a uh, little over half of them are tolerating the offended food uh, by um, uh, one year of age, and then an additional 25%, so over 75% in total are tolerating this by uh, two years of age, which then increases as we get older. Um, a little bit about uh, the developing literature that we have currently. So um, this study here from 2007 uh, attempted to analyze the effect of lactobacillus, a uh, uh, well-established probiotic, with uh, the use of um, uh, dairy restriction. Um, from this study, um, or excuse me, milk protein restriction. Uh, from this study, there was no statistical significant difference in the duration of resolution of symptoms comparing uh, restriction alone versus restriction with a probiotic. So what they looked at was the time uh, to um, uh, the, um, the asymptomatic state and there was no difference. There was also no difference um, in the number of patients who had uh, relapsing symptoms. That study from 2007 contrasts to this study in 2010, um, which attempted to um, state that uh, there was an appreciable benefit of the addition of lactobacillus uh, in some of these uh, contexts. So um, the important thing to uh, understand when looking at this uh, developing body of literature is the test used in this context was calprotectin. Um, uh, and what we had talked about previously is that there's a big overlap in terms of the utility of um, calprotectin and the number of patients who we will um, diagnose with um, milk protein allergy. And so it may not be the best parameter to follow. Regardless, that's what was studied in this study here. Um, the, uh, the study looked at um, hastening improvement with uh, um, nutramagen in particular, so an extensive hydrolyzed formula, and the addition of lactobacillus. What they suggested was that there was a benefit. Um, I will mention here that uh, some of the funding for this study did come from Mead Johnson, who is a manufacturer of nutramagen, so that also can um, affect some of the biases in, um, in relaying some of this information. Um, there's other um, uh, information that's emerging in terms of uh, 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 bacterial uh, strains that may be beneficial, uh, including bifidobacterium and uh, other lactobacillus species. These we know now we now know are uh, um, very specific, um, not only to the species level, but they also may be strain specific. So the one single replicate of bacteria may have. Uh, an impact over another of even the same species. Um, and um, we also know that the, um, there's a role in determining some of this utility with um, particular mice models. Um, when we look at uh, other 
diseases associated with non-IgE mediated diseases, in particular cow's milk protein allergy, uh, what we see is that there is a slight increase in um, some other entities, in particular um, functional uh, um, diagnoses. So here we see in 80 patients uh, who were diagnosed with allergic proctocolitis in infancy, 15% of those went on to develop functional disorders as diagnosed by our criteria, which are uh, coined the Rome 3 criteria. Uh, the, um, when matched with controls, a, fewer, a statistically significant fewer proportion, so 5% uh, of those uh, met diagnoses of these functional disorders. Um, in a meta-analysis looking at 10 different prospective clinical trials, uh, um, cow's milk protein-free um, diet was, um, improved symptoms of constipation. And when we look at the rationale for that, we, uh, some studies have shown that there's an increased um, anal pressure um, at rest secondary to some of this allergic inflammation um, and there may be an interaction with some of these allergic mediated um, cells and the nerve fibers themselves. The way that we study this can be done through anal rectomanometry. We see here depicted up at the top the um, uh, a uh, higher resting pressure and an incomplete relaxation um, in attempts for defecation, as well as here on the, the bottom, um, after a milk restriction, we see a lower resting pressure and an appropriate response um, uh, to relaxation. Um, in closing, a little bit, um, we, we know that there's significant developing literature about the intestinal microbiome and its impacts uh, later in life. Um, that some people are um, feeling is an, another rationale for not unnecessarily restricting diet. Um, and I, I've referenced a couple times uh, the um, long-term development for IgE-mediated diseases that's currently coming uh, uh, in literature uh, that we now know. Um, today, what we've talked about are uh, um, food protein uh, uh, induced colitis and some of these other entities, as well as FPIs. We've talked about the presentation and uh, diagnostic tools, including laboratory testing. Uh, we've talked about the pathogenesis, as well as treatment and prognosis, and a little bit about developing literature in terms of probiotics associated other diseases and some new literature. Um, we have some resources here, and I'm happy to answer any questions we